Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come this morning and we bow ourselves underneath the authority of this text. And we confess that it is difficult. It is not difficult because you have not made it clear. It is difficult because our minds are clouded by sin and weakness and corruption. So Lord, we come before you as we are about to set out and embark upon the journey through Galatians three fifteen to 18. And we ask for your mercy and we ask for your help. It is not here by accident and we claim, we cling by faith to the promise that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for instruction, for correction, for rebuke, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we, we cling to the promise of profit and we embark by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to unpack and to dig our way through and we ask you to to teach us Lord I pray that you would provide for each of your people here this morning a strong foundation on which to build our hope for we need we need a foundation on which to stand to know that we are not cursed even though we hear cursed is everyone who does not abide by every word of the book of the law to do them we have not abided by the book of the law perfectly. We're sinners. So why are we not cursed? What hope do we have? We need a foundation. The promises are spoken to Abraham and to his descendants. And we're Gentiles. We are, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, or rather we were separated from the covenants, excluded from the people of God, without hope and without God in the world. So why are we no longer without hope? Why are we no longer without God? Why are we the children of Abraham and the blessings according to the promise? We need a foundation on which to build these magnificent hopes. And I pray that you would provide that this morning. I pray that you would give us wisdom and patience and grace and faith. Help us, Lord, and glorify your Son in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name. Well, to this point in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he has been absolutely hammering away at the Judaizers' claim that faith alone is insufficient to render sinners like the Galatians and sinners like us acceptable in the sight of God. He's been systematically destroying Their claim that a man needed not only faith, but the works of the law, circumcision, and abiding by the law of Moses in order to get right with God. And in response, Paul has 
adamantly insisted that the law is absolutely powerless to justify sinners. It can declare a righteous man to be righteous, and it can declare an unrighteous man to be unrighteous. It can say that the righteous man is blessed, and it can say that the unrighteous man is cursed, but it can't help us because we're unrighteous people who don't want to be cursed, and we want to be blessed. So what are we going to do when Paul has been saying, you can't turn to the law to solve that situation, to solve this problem. You need a gospel. Namely, you need my gospel, he tells the Galatians. You need a gospel that says that sinners get right with God only. By putting their faith in the cross where Jesus paid the full atonement for their sins. And by receiving by faith the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Which is given not to those who work but to those who believe. The only way. If you walked in this morning burdened by a load of guilt. I want you to hear this. The only way to get right with God is by faith In the cross of Jesus Christ. And the only way, believers, to live a life that is pleasing to God is to walk by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the power of the Holy Spirit alone, from first to last. That's been the point that Paul has been driving home in text after text, week after week. And beginning in Galatians Chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul began to make a scriptural defense of his gospel of justification by faith alone. He appeals first to Abraham. He says, Abraham was justified before God, not by works, not by his obedience, not by his own righteousness, but merely by believing the promise of God. God took Abraham outside of his tent. He said, I want you to look up at the stars, try and number them. So shall your descendants be. And Galatians, or Gen. Genesis 15, 6 said that Abraham believed God and God counted his faith as righteousness. Anyone else, therefore, who would be right with God and declared righteous must come to him in the very same way, by faith in the promise of God, by faith in the promise of the gospel. Paul proceeded on and he says, furthermore, anyone who might try to add works of the law to faith in Christ, they're under a curse. Why? Because they've tried to purchase from God by their own works what God gives freely by his own grace. And Paul is going to, he's going to sound this trumpet over and over again as we proceed through the last three chapters of the book of Galatians. Such hard-hearted, self-reliant, stubborn, rebellious pride will not inherit the blessing of God, but rather will come underneath his wrath. Why? Because, listen to me, beloved, it is an offense to God to try to buy from him what he only gives freely by his grace. So at this point, we find ourselves in verse 15 of chapter 3, and Paul anticipates that his Judaizing opponents there in Galatia are going to have a response for him. And so he heads it off at the pass, beginning in verse 15. And the rebuttal that Paul anticipates from the lips of the Judaizers would go something like this. Okay, Here's what they're going to say to what Paul has said thus far. Then what about the law, Paul? Even if we grant that Abraham was justified by faith, even so, God saw fit to give a law through Moses at Mount Sinai. 
So Paul, even if we give you Abraham, what about Moses? Even if we grant to you that we must begin by faith like Abraham did, surely you will not deny that God then demands obedience. Otherwise, why would he have thundered down commandments from Mount Sinai? If God does not require that works of the law be added to faith in the promise, why did he add the law through Moses? Why did he add Moses to Abraham? Okay, that's the response that Paul is answering in verses 15 through 18 and even on to the end of uh, verse 25. I want to point you to the main point. The main point of Paul's response is found in verse 17 where he says this. And by the way, I would say you know you're saying something technical if you have to follow it up with. What I am saying is this. So Paul says in verse 17, what I am saying is that the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Okay? That's his point, that the covenant of law, which was given at Mount Sinai 430 years, not after Abraham, but after Jacob descended into Egypt, the law that was given 430 years later does not invalidate, revoke, or in any way alter the covenant of promise that was given to Abraham. So that's the claim that Paul makes. You want to throw Moses back in my face? Let me tell you this. Moses does not change at all what God spoke to Abraham. And he's going to support this claim by means of three arguments. We're going to unpack those three arguments. They're found in verse 15, verse 16, and verse 18. Which are all there undergirding the point, which is that the terms of the covenant of grace remain as they have always been. That the blessing of God, inclusion in the people of God, access to the land of God, and an everlasting presence of joy where God dwells, people, place, and a person. The blessings of God are given to those and only those who believe the gospel just like Abraham did. All right, so let's unpack these three arguments, then we'll conclude, and I'm going to give you a a thought or two for your reflection. All right, argument number one that Paul makes is found in verse 15, where he says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, I imagine that there are many of you here, even those of you who are not lawyers, and I trembled a little bit to go into this because I am not a lawyer, and there are some of you here who are, who might be able to point out the deficiencies in my grasp of the nature of wills and testaments. But I imagine that many of you recognized and and obvious and apparent problem with Paul's logic in verse 15, which is that in our legal system, at least, covenants, and by covenants, I want you to think of a will and a testament. It's the same word that is used for both interrelated thoughts or concepts. No covenant can be altered, or rather, in our legal system, at least, a covenant can be altered as often as the one who made it desires, right? I mean, if you write a will, You can go back and change your will as often as you desire. Under our legal system, if you go to the lawyer's office and you draft a will, you can change the terms of the will. You can add conditions to it. You can add beneficiaries. You can remove beneficiaries anytime you please for a nominal legal fee. 
But there comes a time, I would say, even in our legal system, when that will becomes binding and unalterable and unchangeable, and that's when the one who makes it dies, and it passes through probate. At that point, the will is permanent and is irrevocably ratified. But that's our legal system, which is based upon the Roman legal system. But in Greek law, as well as under certain Jewish inheritance law, a will could not be modified or changed or repealed or revoked once it was properly ratified, not even if the one who made the covenant wanted to revoke it or alter it or change it. Once the will was ratified, which happened when it was presented with all the proper legal paperwork and all the proper way at the, at the city office or wherever it was that they took care of the, of the city business, it couldn't be changed. The same was true in Jewish inheritance law. Under a certain type of Jewish inheritance law, the, law, the, the will could not be altered, could not be changed, could not be revoked once it had been made. But I would say this, no matter what type of covenant that Paul has in mind, if he's thinking Roman, if he's thinking Greek, if he's thinking Jewish, the point is clear. Once a will has been properly ratified, either by death or by legal declaration, no covenant can be revoked, set aside, nor can any conditions be added to it. And Paul's point is really an argument from the lesser to the greater. If that's true on the human level, how much more true is it with God who can neither change nor ever changes his mind, says Numbers 23, 19. All right, so that's Paul's argument. It's, it's easy enough to understand. Once the, once the will has come into effect, once it's been properly ratified, it can't be changed, can't be added to, can't be revoked. Well, in, in order for Paul's argument to stand, then we need to establish whether or not God's covenant with Abraham was properly ratified. Well, to that question, I would say we can answer in the affirmative, and I would invite you to turn back with me to Genesis chapter 15. God's covenant with Abraham was ratified in accordance with the legal procedures of the day. Okay, so we're, we're dealing 4,000 years ago. We're dealing in an ancient system. And under that system, covenants in that ancient Near Eastern culture were sealed were ratified, not with paper, not with a handshake. They were ratified through the shedding of blood. Covenants were quite literally cut and sealed in the blood of a sacrifice. And so in Genesis 15, we see this very odd, at least to us, this very odd procedure going on, this odd ceremony in which God makes a promise to Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the stars of the sky. Abraham believes God. His faith is credited as righteousness. And then God gives Abraham some instructions that are a little strange. He tells Abraham to bring a number of sacrificial animals, cut them in two, and lay them opposite one another, kind of making an aisle. And then he put Abraham to sleep. And while Abraham was asleep, this smoking furnace and this this torch signifying God's presence, right, passed between the sacrifices and the covenant was thereby ratified in the legally acceptable way by the shedding of blood. We're going to come back a little bit as to why only God walked through, but we see that there was a covenant made, there was a promise given, and there was blood shed. 
In fact, nearly every time God makes a promise to Abraham, we find there a bloody altar. I was reading one writer this week who said that you can almost track Abraham's progress throughout the promised land by means of these altars that he erects. The last one in Genesis 22 erected on a mountain called Mount Moriah, which was the same mountain, by the way, which 2,000 years later, the altar to end all altars, which is the cross, was erected. And there the Lamb of God was slain to bring this covenant with Abraham into full effect. So let's wrap this first argument up. Here's what Paul is saying. It goes something like this. No covenant, no will, no testament can be revoked or altered in any way once it has been properly ratified. God properly ratified his covenant with Abraham there in Genesis 15 in strict accordance with the elaborate covenant ceremonies of the day. Therefore, Paul's logic flows, God's covenant with Abraham cannot be revoked, cannot be altered, without also calling into question the integrity of God. Which means that whatever God was doing... 430 years later at Mount Sinai, he was not adding to and he was not replacing and he was not bringing an end to the covenant that he made with Abraham. Got it? The covenant with Abraham stands unchanged, unalterable, never lasting. Which means that the blessing of God that was promised to Abraham is still given in the very same way that it was given to Abraham, which is... By faith. In other words, the only way for somebody to be justified now as then is to come to God on the very same basis. Mere faith in the promise of God. So that's his first argument. Let's look at his second one in verse 16. He says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Now again, I suspect that many of you will recognize a problem, at least apparently so, with Paul's argument, which is that the word seed, maybe your Bible has offspring, is a collective noun, which means that it's given in the singular, but everybody knows that it refers to, or at least can refer to, an innumerable host of people, or or seeds. If I hold a seed in my hand, right, that's one. But if I say there's seed in my hand, I, I may have hundreds, thousands. Well, the same was true in both the Hebrew and the Greek language. It's a collective noun. One referring to many. So the question is, is Paul justified in making this argument from from the singular as, as opposed to the plural, when there is no plural, they didn't have a word for seeds. What's he doing? When he takes Genesis 17, 7, where God used the singular noun seen at seed, and he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you. Is he justified or is he playing fast and loose with Hebrew grammar? Well, in answer to that question, I want to make a couple of quick notes. Number one, Paul knew that seed was a collective noun, which could refer to a large number of descendants. In fact, if you scan down the page at Galatians 3.29, you'll see that Paul makes exactly the same point and uses the word in exactly the same fashion there in Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's, literally, you are Abraham's seed. Now, is he talking about one person or is he talking about many? 
He's talking about many. So Paul knows what he's doing. We would do honor to Paul if we would not automatically jump in and assume that he made a mistake. Paul's been around the grammatical block a few times. His education, his grammar school was much more rigorous than ours is. No offense to teachers. So here's the second thing I want to say. So if Paul's not messing up, what's he doing? Well, Paul's not so much making a grammatical point as he is a theological one. When God made the promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, 7, Genesis 17, 7, the primary referent, the one to whom seed refers, in other words, is singular. God says, I will make this covenant between me and you and your seed, and what he has in mind is your seed, that is Isaac, not Ishmael, not the sons of Keturah that he would have later, of all of the physical descendants, of all of the physical seeds of Abraham, the promise was not made with them all. The promise was made with one, that is Isaac. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is then making the theological claim that when, Paul, when God said, I'm going to make this covenant between me and you and your seed, that is Isaac, he's not even really referring to Isaac, but he's jumping ahead and he's referring to Isaac's descendant according to the flesh, who is... Christ. See, throughout the Old Testament, there's this connection between the covenant promise and a seed, a singular seed. Genesis 3.15, God makes the very first gospel promise, and he says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman is, of course, Jesus Christ, who came in order to destroy the works of the devil, says 1 John 3.8. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David and he says that his seed will sit forever upon the throne of God's people and that this seed would build for God a temple, that he would be called the Son of God, that he would sit upon the throne of God, that he would reign over the people of God, and that he would establish the everlasting kingdom of God. Who's going to do all of that? The seed of David, who is Jesus. So what Paul is doing in Galatians 3.16 is just adding another link in the chains of the promise of a seed. And he's saying that the covenant of grace, the blessing of Abraham, it does not belong to Abraham's physical descendants. It belongs to the seed, one seed in particular, that is Christ. Jesus, who is the seed of the woman, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham, Jesus is the true child of promise in whom all of the blessings of the covenant of grace are fulfilled, and from whom all of the blessings of the covenant flow. So we see this line that Paul is making. Paul says, you know, God made this promise, and he made it with Abraham, but he didn't really make it with Abraham. He made it with Abraham and with his seed. But he's not even really referring to Abraham's physical descendants, nor is he really even referring to Isaac. He's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the blessing comes from God. It flows through Abraham, and it's found and fulfilled and all just captured together in this reservoir of grace found in Jesus Christ. And who has access, access to that? Who's in, who's in Christ? We are, by faith. So he jumps to the end and he says in Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Okay, so there's second argument. 
The law doesn't annul the promise because the promise was made with Abraham and with the Lord Jesus. And the blessings, therefore, belong to anyone who is in Jesus by faith. Third part to Paul's argument, it comes to us in verses 17 and 18. What I'm saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So the third leg, as it were, supporting Paul's argument that Moses does not change Abraham is that the covenant that was made with Abraham was a covenant of grace. It was a covenant of pure promise. It was a covenant with no conditions of law attached to it at all. In fact, it was a covenant of such a pure, gracious quality that if conditions were added to it, it says in verse 18, that the whole covenant would, it would blow up and the promise would be made void, nullified. If conditions were added and the inheritance were now based upon the works of the law, the promise would be nullified, the original covenant would be voided. So we've got to ask ourselves another question. Is Paul justified in making this claim? Is it actually true that the covenant made with Abraham was a covenant of grace, a covenant of promise, that God didn't say, do this and you shall live? That there were were no conditions of the law attached to it? Well, if we're going to verify that, all we need to do is look back to Genesis 15, if you're still there. You remember the ceremony that's going on, right? God makes the promise to Abraham. Abraham believes and is justified. The animals are brought in. They're cut. The aisle is is constructed, as it were, placed opposite one another, the pieces of the sacrificed animals. The point of this ceremony was to provide a vivid warning that should the parties in covenant with one another fail to keep the terms of of the covenant, then the blood would be on their own heads. It was a sign of the covenant, a very visible demonstration that this is what happens to those who don't keep the terms of the covenant. Kind of a scary deal. It was as if by passing through the slaughtered pieces, the parties in covenant with one another We're saying, may this be done to me if I fail to keep the terms that I'm agreeing to right now. But the question is, and what I want to point out to you is, who actually passes through the pieces? Is it God and Abraham working together to fulfill the terms? Is that what you see? Abraham is asleep. Abraham is completely passive when the covenant is ratified. It is God and it is God alone who makes the promises. It is God and it is God alone who establishes obligations upon himself. It is God who says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will give you this land as an inheritance. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the heaven. I will establish my covenant with you. And Abraham just says, okay. This is a one-way covenant in which only one party of the covenant, that is the Lord, agrees to fulfill obligations. The other party, Abraham, simply receives by faith the blessing that God is promising. Do you see it? 
Now think about how different the covenant of Abraham is with the covenant that would come later through Moses at Mount Sinai. In the covenant of grace with Abraham, God tells Abraham, all of this I will do for you. You just receive it by faith. And then he takes the blood and he takes the curse upon himself should he fail to fulfill the obligations of the covenant. In the covenant of law at Mount Sinai, that is not what happens. God hands down not promises. He doesn't say, I will, I will, I will. He hands down commandments, obligations. Thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. And when all of the commandments have been given, when the obligations of the covenant have been laid down, the people say, all of this we will do. And Moses says, all right then. Bring the sacrifice. And they bring the sacrifice and he takes the blood and he begins to sprinkle it on who? On the people. The blood be on your own heads if you don't abide by all words written in the book of the law. Cursed. So how on earth, Paul says, recognizing the radically different natures of these two covenants. They could not be more different. On the one hand, God does everything, and he says, believe. On the other hand, God gives laws, and he says, you've got to do everything. Then you'll be blessed, and if you don't, you'll be cursed. The covenant with Abraham was a covenant of promise, founded upon grace, the blessing received by faith. The covenant through Moses was a covenant of law, based upon merit, the blessing achieved by works. As we'll see in a couple of weeks, the covenant of law was given to be a servant of the covenant of grace to show the people, even though you may sit out there and proudly say, all this we will do, you can't do a bit of it. What you need is a sacrifice of atonement. The covenant of law was given to reveal to the people their sin and to point them to Christ like a tutor. We'll unpack that next time in verses 19 to 25. So if we put verses 15 to 18 together, okay, we take this technical argument, we kind of we see if we can break it apart and summarize it, I think maybe we can see Paul's point, and if we can see Paul's point, then you're going to be forced to conclude this is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> the law given at Mount Sinai cannot possibly have anything to do with whether or not you're a child of Abraham and an heir of the blessing because, number one, The covenant made with Abraham was properly ratified and therefore is irrevocable and unalterable. Number two, the blessing promised to Abraham was promised not to the physical descendants of Abraham, but to his one seed, the child of promise, right? Ishmael? No. Sons of Keturah? No. Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And Paul says, you know what? That seed, that child of promise is not really even Isaac. It's Isaac's son to the 20th generation down there somewhere is the Lord Jesus Christ so the blessing is never according to physical descent if it was according to physical descent then it would have been all of Abraham's children no it's according to promise God sovereignly said not Ishmael not the sons of Keturah Isaac and Paul says you know what not Isaac Christ and therefore if you're in Christ by faith guess who else is an heir one of you. Number three, the covenant with Abraham is a covenant of promise based upon grace, and the blessing is received through faith apart from works of the law. Wrap it all together. Here's the word of God to you this morning. 
The only way to inherit the blessing of Abraham is to be in Christ by faith because works of the law, the covenant with Moses, Mount Sinai, has nothing to do with it. The covenant of law came in order that we would be shown to be what we really are, sinners in need of grace. Well, today is Palm Sunday. It marks the beginning of Passion Week, so I thought that I would conclude this message by posing and answering a question. Okay? The question is this. What is all of this, the Abrahamic covenant of grace, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with Palm Sunday? And the answer is everything. And as we close, I want to invite you to kind of take a journey at a bird's eye view of the Old Testament with me, and I want to show you why. If you'll think back to Genesis chapter 3, to the time of the fall, you will see the very first couple, Adam and Eve, and they're hiding from the presence of God. They're hiding from the presence of the one whom they formerly had loved and with whom they had enjoyed sweet and unbroken fellowship. And they're hiding because they see now their sin and their shame. They've disobeyed God's commandments and they're underneath his curse. And so they seek in futility to cover themselves with fig leaves, leaves, garments of their own making. But they soon find that their works can avail them nothing to cover their shame nor to remove the sin that now separates them from God. But Genesis 3 does not end this book of Scripture because we see that God in His grace, He comes and before He casts them out of His garden, before He casts them from His presence in order to suffer the wages of their sin and to dwell underneath His curse, in His grace, God seeks them out. Adam, Adam, where are you? And He gives them a promise. There will come from your seed a Redeemer who will destroy the works of Satan that you now see manifested before you. And He clothes them. He removes their fig leaves which couldn't do anything to hide them from His presence. And He provides garments of His own making, garments of skin that were made through the shedding of blood. And so way back in the very beginning we find grace and we find a promise and we find a bloody sacrifice. So we look on a little bit further and we come maybe to Genesis chapter 12. And we see a man called by God's grace out of Ur. A man who had nothing to offer God. He was a moon worshipping pagan in a foreign land. And God says you, I'm going to make of you a great nation and I'm going to bless you. He gives to him spectacular promises. And we see this man simply believing the promises, being justified before God, not by obedience and not by effort, but by faith. And we find at the end of this man's life, at the end of Abraham's life, God gives him a rather strange command. He says, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, your only begotten, beloved son, and I want you to take him up to the top of Mount Moriah and I want you to kill him. And in obedience... Abraham goes, but before the knife can fall, God stops him and he provides a substitute sacrifice and then he reaffirms the promise of blessing. And once again, we see a covenant of grace. We see these elements there, grace and a promise and a bloody sacrifice. And down through the ages, as we proceed through the Old Testament, the promise of the gospel continues, but it gains focus and it gains traction and it gains clarity. God promises to the prophet Isaiah in the 8th century B.C. that there's coming for the people of God a servant who will suffer to bear their iniquities and thereby will justify the many. 
And he promises in the 6th century B.C. to Jeremiah that there's coming a righteous branch of David who will come and he will reign as king. And his name by which he will be called is the Lord, our righteousness. And he promises in the 5th century to Ezekiel that there's a shepherd coming through whom God will establish with his people a new covenant. And he will give to us a new heart and he'll put his spirit within us and he will write his commandments upon our hearts and we will love him for the first time. Always, with every promise, there is blessing, there is grace, and there is the shedding of blood. And for those who believe the promise, God removes the fig leaves of their works that can do nothing to hide our sin and can do nothing to hide our shame. And he clothes them in garments of righteousness made through the shedding of blood. So finally, we come to Palm Sunday. We come to the Gospels and we see the seed of David, right? He's riding into Jerusalem and they're, they're placing the palm branches down before him and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we've got to ask ourselves, why does he enter into Jerusalem? He knows he's going to be killed. Why does he go? He goes in order to fulfill the covenant of grace, the promise made to David. He comes in order that the temple of his body may be destroyed and that he may raise up in three days the true temple of God in which God dwells by his Holy Spirit. We see the seed of Abraham, the child of promise, climbing Mount Moriah with the, with the cross on which he's going to construct his own altar on the back. And he obediently lays himself down in order that his father may slay him atop the mountain. This time, however, there is no substitute because he's the substitute. Why does he do it? He does so in order to fulfill the covenant of grace, the promise made to Abraham that on this mountain the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide the Lamb of God. We see the seed of the woman bruised by the serpent as he suffers in agony the curse of sin. God asks ourselves, why does he do it? He does so in order to fulfill the covenant of grace, the promise made to Adam and Eve. That the serpent, the evil one who had wrought so much death and so much destruction and so much cursing would be crushed under the weight of a finished atonement and a glorious resurrection. You see, Jesus has everything to do with the covenant of grace with Abraham and with every one of you. The word of God to you this morning is that it's, it's finished. That which was promised to Adam and Eve is finished. That which was promised to Abraham was finished. That which was promised to David, to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, to Ezekiel, it's finished. It's complete. The Messiah has come and the new covenant, which is the fulfillment of that gracious promise, is now in effect. And you and I, we're invited in the midst of our sin and in the midst of our shame and in the midst of our doubt, in the midst of our fear and our trials and our tribulations and our sufferings, we're invited to come and to rest, and to enjoy the riches of his grace. So Paul set out in this passage, difficult as it was, he set out to provide for us a foundation on which to set, to set and to build and to erect and to establish our faith. So here's your foundation. The covenant of grace stands. Unbreakable, unalterable, irrevocable. The foundation stands in order that sinners like us may have the assurance of pardon and the assurance of freedom and the assurance of blessing through faith. The promises come, 
The blood has been shed. It is finished. And now God embraces sinners in the same way that he always has, in the same way that he did Adam and Eve, in the same way that he did Abraham, in the same way that he did David, in the same way that he's, that he's embraced anyone who comes to him, and that is by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. So the word of God to you this morning is to come and to rest and to believe and to live. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, you did not leave humanity out to suffer under the curse of sin and then, and then hand them a law which says, now make yourselves righteous and I'll accept you. But as soon as sin came into the world, so did grace. So did a God who seeks and saves sinners. So did a God who removes the, the fig leaves of our, of our incomplete and inadequate works and covers us in the, in the garments of his righteousness, skins made through the shedding of blood. I thank you that grace has continued. Even though you gave the law in order to show us what we really are, sinners in need of a savior, sinners in need of a sacrifice, sinners in need of mercy. The covenant of grace remained unchanged, unbreakable, unalterable, irrevocable throughout it all until Jesus Christ comes and inaugurates the new covenant in his own blood. And so my prayer to you is a prayer of thanksgiving, it's a prayer of worship. And it's a prayer saying, bring faith. The only way any person in this room is going to be included in the covenant of blessing is by faith. So bring it. Be gracious. Take the, the foolishness of preaching this morning. And make it the wisdom and the power of God unto salvation. Bring grace. Bring faith. Bring rest for our souls. We stand under the banner of a finished atonement and a fulfilled promise. We stand under the banner of Christ. Cause us to rejoice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.